This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. I've walked your snow-capped mountains. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 4th, 2021, and this is episode 225. I'm Scott Delenabom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, the latest fundraising data shows where BC's political parties stand and the latest COVID-19 vaccine rollout is not going great. (laughs) First, thank you to the 102 people who contribute to the show every month. Thanks especially to Gordon for their new pledge. It looks like we're down a few from last week. I think that's because your credit cards may have expired. So please check that and make sure you have your correct credit card details up on patreon.com. Remember, if you contribute to the show, you can get into our exclusive Slack channel, support the show at patreon.com slash politicoast. If you pledge at $5 or more, you get an ad-free version of the show. And speaking of, let's hear our ad. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. Moving into our first segment, raking in the big bucks, the Elections BC released two big reports this week the 2020 Provincial General Election Financing Reports, and the Q4 2020 Interim Financial Reports. So it's time for a numbers segment. I read a whole bunch of numbers, and I'm eager to talk about it. Okay. Where do you want to start, Scott? Let's go very high level on the Provincial General Election, because just reading off a long list of numbers doesn't make for a super great podcast, but what's the takeaway? The takeaway is the NDP were the big spenders this election. They spent $4.2 million over the course of the election. The BC Liberals spent $3.1 million, and the BC Greens spent a mere $730,000. It's not that surprising given the size of the campaigns. Uh, This may, I'd have to go back and check all of history, but this may be the first election campaign where the NDP has outspent their political rival. Definitely the first in quite a while. And it goes to show when they won, but we had seen the Liberals struggling to fundraise under the new rules and since losing power since 2017. And the results really went to the victor. We talked through the election continually about how it was somewhat of a foregone conclusion. And that probably depressed the opposition parties fundraising a little bit. Money counts. Yeah, and it didn't help that the uh, liberals weren't exactly running someone who I think really stirred up the passions of the base at all. So yeah, between a leader who's didn't have fundraising as their strongest suit and just the general strength of the NDP, the, the high-level takeaway isn't really surprising on this. So moving beyond the top level. There's some like interesting little tidbits throughout the reports that came out. 
Richard Zussman pointed out on Twitter that the BC Liberals actually transferred $17,000 to Laurie Thronis after he resigned as a BC Liberal candidate. And so parties generally transfer money to and from their local candidates just as a way to make sure that the really strong fundraisers or people that throw money just into the central pot can still support these smaller campaigns or campaigns where they don't necessarily have as much funds. It seemed weird to Zussman and I think many onlookers that the party would be funding a candidate who had quit the party. It wasn't so much quit, didn't so much quit as was quitted from the party. Yeah, so that definitely struck a lot of people's weird, including myself. The Liberals' response to this is that this was based on pre-existing agreements that were between Theronis' local campaign and the BC Liberal Party overall, and they were just executing those agreements made when he was officially Liberal, and that just ended up going through afterwards. In other words... He bought the signs at the start of the campaign when he was a candidate, but the receipts didn't make it to central office and get paid out until after he was not a candidate for the party. And so I th it's probably a reasonable, anyone who's ever tried to get paid, it takes time sometimes. The liberals maybe could have pushed back. I don't know the exact wording of the arrangements or how firm it was. They, they could have maybe tried to get out of it, but that likely would have ended up just with a long protracted battle they didn't want to have to deal with. And really, it's more of like a footnote to the entire story. And Nobody is going to remember this in four years' time. No one's probably going to remember this in four weeks' time. There was some interesting data in the report as well about third-party advertisers since anyone, any organization or company or union that wanted to advertise during the campaign or talk about the election had to register and report their spending, as well as any contributions they received to go towards the specific election campaigns. So there were a number of organizations that reported or that did register. Ultimately, only a handful of organizations actually reported getting individual donations. So that became a funny little spreadsheet in there where there was only $54,000 in contributions from 13 different people, as well as a number of small donors, mostly going to lead now, as well as groups like Dogwood and the Surrey Firefighters. To put it in contrast, third-party spenders spent a total of 568000 on the election. So not quite as much as the BC Greens. And they were also all over the place because you had groups arguing on all different sides of the issues. So they weren't one voice. But sign that like 560000 between all of these other groups is almost like big money in a way isn't too involved in our province, which is nice to see. The... The largest spenders of the organizations that are listed there, because a number of them didn't actually claim to have spent any money. I think they just wanted to register either in case they spent any or so that they could speak out and not get in trouble if they were alleged to have spent money. The National Police Federation spent 123000 Now, this one really surprised me because I do not recall 
much discussion of policing coming up in the campaign at all. There was, you know, a lot of stuff that was happening in the kind of general discourse in the months ahead of the campaign that kind of continued somewhat throughout. But that was very much time in the kind of national and international discussions and not BC specific so much. So seeing them as the top spenders odd and the fact that i'm having trouble remembering is probably something they didn't get a huge amount of value for their money so the national police federation is the union for the rcmp and i'm pretty sure where they spent their money oh, was surrey. in surrey right. and on the liberals campaign to essentially save the rcmp to hold a referendum over whether the rcmp should be kicked out in favor of a surrey police okay that actually makes more sense and why Myself in Vancouver probably saw none of their targeted ads. It's still a point that money was pretty much all set on fire since the Liberals did not do well in Surrey in the end. And it seems like they have not saved the RCMP there yet. But I think the National Police Federation is ongoing in their advocacy in Surrey. I've seen when I've looked at the Facebook ad disclosures, they're generally up there in terms of spenders. The second highest spender and the only other one to break 100,000, hell, the only other one to break 50,000 was the Trial Lawyers Association of BC. I think we know what their big target was. Yep, no fault insurance for ICBC. That's going to result in a lot less work for them. Some of the smaller organizations to put money out there, Lead Now put $41,000, the Canadian Home Builders Association of BC put 39000 and the Mining Association put 35000 And then there was a handful of other environmental groups and union groups that put 15000 or less, or quite a lot less. Interestingly, a lot of the teaching locals like the BCTF or a lot of the teaching locals and even the BCTF reported spending no money. There were three local teaching unions in Surrey, Kootenay, Columbia, and Mount Aerosmith who did report spending a little bit on ads, like 3800 at most. But otherwise, I guess the teaching unions didn't get too involved in this. A few other big unions also reported not spending much, if any money. Like even the Canadian Labour Congress only spent 9000 yeah, I'm kind of curious about that. So on one hand, you, with the Liberals running a pretty lackluster campaign and pretty much everyone thinking they weren't going to win this, I could see why they, various labor groups weren't putting a huge amount of money in, want to keep that for something else. On the other hand, you, you would have figured, because they, they have generally in the past been fairly big players in elections, that they would do more like they can at very least mobilize their members to vote assuming they'll all vote more ndp than not uh, i think within the that's teaching not always a safe assumption like teachers unions probably a bit some of the other unions maybe less so i think the teachers federation in particular though is not particularly friendly to any government in bc so that may have been why they in particular sat out a little bit more. They figured they'd have to fight no matter what. And then finally, on the election financing, there were a number of organizations and groups and individuals who either missed the deadline or were granted an extension. And I thought these were interesting as well. So the following organizations that 
O reports have missed it and now have until February 22nd, and they also owe a $500 late fee. This includes four unions, the Construction and Specialized Workers Union Local 1611, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Teamsters Local 213, and UA Canada. I looked it up, it's a piping trades union. But more fun than the unions, the Libertarian Party and Trevor Boland, the leader of the BC Conservatives, failed to provide their reports. Must be just like an anti-government thing. Or the fact that they're just two very disorganized parties. There were a number of other individuals and one political party who were granted extensions because they couldn't get things together, but at least they could say they couldn't get things together fast enough. This includes the Communist Party of BC. But more interestingly, Laurie Thronis, who we've mentioned, Sonia Furstenau, the leader of the BC Greens, prominent NDP candidate Tessica Truong, as well as BC Liberals Tripat Atwell and Paul Boparai. Individual circumstance may have been made any of these reasonable that they couldn't. I'm guessing Laurie Thronis, for example, has some complications on his that may take a little longer to sort out. The other ones, I'm less sure on why they haven't gotten around to filing theirs or applied for exemptions. Yeah. So ultimately, the fundraising data is not that surprising given we know who won the election and it seemed like they were running a more well-funded campaign. Looking now to turn our attention to the fourth quarter interim financial reports, between October 1st and December 31st, the NDP raised $2.9 million. The Liberals raised almost just over half of that, $1.5 million, and the BC Greens raised $900,000. So this includes the election period as well as the end of the year. For interest's sake, I decided to go back through and look up all of the different quarters numbers that I think we've mostly talked about on the podcast. This gives me a rough estimate of how much each party raised through the year. The NDP therefore took in $6.3 million, the BC Liberals 3.6, and the BC Greens 1.5, which is like a shocking gap compared to where we were a few years ago, where the NDP and Liberals were pretty neck and neck. Even in quarter one, they both raised about 650, 700,000. But then it just really took off for the NDP. And, and the Liberals tried pretty badly hit in quarter two, which is interesting. So the Greens actually gained a little bit in the second quarter compared to the Liberals who shrunk a lot down to 280k. And that is a little curious because I did understand all the opposition parties falling down and fundraising with what was going on then. Now that was the height of the first wave. There were all these layoffs. I think that was peak economic uncertainty during this past year. So it it makes a lot of sense why fundraising would take a hit in quarter two. But that only seemed to have hit the liberals. And that's what's so curious about it. I think I recall us talking at the time about how they may have just paused their fundraising. Maybe like hoping the others would also do it. But it was one of those like ceasefire situations where it only works if everyone agrees to the (laughs) ceasefire. Yeah, and that was one of the Liberals' big mistakes this past year. They, for a lot of the, I guess, first half of the 2020 pandemic period, were pretty apolitical in a lot of ways. They just generally acted as support for the province overall moving forward on the stuff, which 
on one hand is really good in terms of a crisis response trying to get everything done but politically they paid a pretty big price for that both in terms of fundraising and ending up just making John Horgan look good right before an, an election that you know they cap the NDP capitalized on quite a bit so the lesson which is i think bad for society overall in times of crisis but will nevertheless be the lesson people take away from this or political actors will is that it does not pay to cooperate with the government in times like this it just isn't very good and i don't see any way we could have avoided that short of john horton not being incredibly opportunistic with the election call like the bc greens weren't critical of government in q2 over the covid response and they still managed to hold their fundraising on their own maybe bc greens were a bit more sympathetic and willing to support the party regardless but there is that does paint a possible different approach that's not as pessimistic as i think you painted out the, the greens also lost the seat so uh, you, you can make a case off the fundraising numbers a bit but no opposition party fared well for not being harsher on the government. Looking forward, this paints an interesting and very difficult path for whoever takes over as the BC Liberal leader. Not only is the party significantly behind in fundraising after 2020, but with the per vote subsidy based on the number of votes now that was cast for each party in the 2020 election, the NDP is going to look at a significant top up over its opposition parties going forward, only exacerbating these challenges. So figuring out how to really build out that grassroots fundraising and support is going to be like job number one for whoever wins that poison chalice. It's something they should be able to do. The, the playbook for that is really written by the Conservative Party of Canada back after they abolished the federal per vote subsidy parties know how to do this now it doesn't provide or there are definitely ways i don't think it helps the overall culture of politics in the country to have a very grassroots focused small dollar donation model because it incentivizes parties to ramp up the rhetoric to 11 in order to make their supporters really mad about the other party so they donate, which is somewhat corrosive on things, but is very much the incentive structure that emerges from having to move to a kind of small dollar donation model. And just to wrap it off, the Greens did well on fundraising for their size. But like you said, they only managed to hold two seats out of the election. They did well in a number of other seats, but just missed those breakthroughs. So there is engagement in that party, but keeping that momentum up for four years is going to be, I think, their big challenge. And I don't think it's likely that Sonia Fersenau or Adam Olson will be retiring from politics. So hopefully they won't be facing a by-election, but maybe they have a chance to break through if they're lucky in 
another by-election if it comes up. Moving from the very normal political fundraising situations to something that is a little more specific to this year, we're on to our second segment, COVID woes. As the news keeps coming this week, not a huge amount of it good, but uh, several items did emerge. And I think first off, the probably big one is... Ottawa brought in new travel restrictions. Actually, I'm not even sure I should say it. You know what? It's not really the big one. It's a small step on things that should have been brought in a while ago. It's perhaps the most notable one. This had been, I think, something bubbling up in the background, particularly since the new strains emerged from the UK, South Africa, and other stuff. Some initial measures were brought in back in December to limit incoming flights from those areas, but overall not a huge amount was done. That changed this week as the Liberals inched things a little closer to a more thorough system to prevent incoming transmission as they convinced airlines to suspend flights to certain destinations, mainly the Caribbean and Mexico. Interestingly, Florida is not included on that list, which raised a few eyebrows. So this is clearly an attempt to cut down on Canadians' travel for non-essential vacations. And then the other big thing they did on travel rules was they're implementing a mandatory PCR test at airports for people returning to Canada. This is in addition to the one that was required to get on the plane. And then travelers have to quarantine in specific hotels uh, designated by the government while the results come in. They get a negative test. They're allowed to go home but have to spend the remainder of the 14-day period at home. I found it really interesting they're making travelers stay at those hotels at their own expense. I don't have any like sympathy for people who are taking vacations abroad right now, obviously, because it's been pretty clear for a while that you shouldn't be doing that. And so the fact you have to drop two grand to stay at a hotel when you get back while you quarantine, tough. (laughs) You shouldn't have gone abroad. Yeah, the same thing applies for... Essential travel. Most essential travel will be by people who need to travel for work-related reasons in those few jobs that aren't able to be done remote. I shouldn't even say few jobs. There's a lot of people traveling for transportation-related industries and whatnot. Those cases, the I'd imagine their work expenses would cover off that. I think you nailed it early in your intro on that, like all of this is good and reasonable to help slow the spread of this, of the new variants in particular, but why all of this is happening at the start of February, 2021, instead of just the February, 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's, I think where I am on a lot of this stuff and we'll get into that scenes and second half of the segment is If the government wants to be applauded for the efforts they're taking, it needs to be something that is clearly the result of a new development that requires 
a new measure, whereas pretty much everything they're doing is responses to things that should have been obvious back early in the pandemic. And at this point, there's just no real... There's no credit gets given for turning in the assignment 10 months late. And the places that have been really successful at stopping the spread of COVID, they've all had a system like this in one way or another. Uh, Typically, they don't even allow you to go home after three days with negative tests. It's a full 14 days in quarantine. No ifs, ands, or buts. And they test you. That's what's allowed Australia to have good results. That's what's allowed New Zealand, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore. All, All of these places put in place measures to stop the spread and stop the introduction and whereas we're still in the limit the spread and control it even like bc announced updated safety measures for k-12 schools today which basically extended the mass mandate for schools from the hallways to the time it takes a student to walk to their desk they don't have to wear it at their desk that's their choice so the spot where the students are going to be for six hours a day or so they don't actually have to wear the argument pardon yeah the argument is that you're not required to wear your mask at your desk at work although your office doesn't generally have 30 people crammed into a space where you can't all keep two meters apart like many high school classrooms especially in science departments you have four kids at a table because it's a workbench rather than like individual desks spaced out. I think there's just a misconception about what our schools actually look like. I mean, the other defense is at least we haven't seen much transmission in schools, but I think what it all comes down to is we continue to just fight the last battle on this issue. We're always fighting the virus as it was rather than being proactive enough to get to COVID zero, for example. I'm not even sure if it's a case of fighting the last battle. That's not the metaphor I necessarily reach for. It's this, I'm not even sure how to describe it, kind of a culture that, uh, I'm struggling for words. It's There is a general thing in Canadian culture that makes a lot of people, a lot of decision makers kind of risk averse and particularly it's noticeable in government's tendency to not want to overreact or or have the embarrassment of committing too many resources to something and it shown it was not needed and ultimately wasteful. And that seems to have percolated through the entire response to COVID with the possible inception of CERB and a few of the other programs the feds brought in very early on for support measures and everything else, particularly the non-pharmaceutical interventions have generally taken that approach and that kind of risk reverse I never wanted to overreact to something measures as also I think combined with the fact that quite a few of the non-political decision makers and experts 
comic book science background, which is great, but there was also the tendency to only want to react or implement something when there was evidence on the level that would be able to be published in a journal rather than the evidence we could make a hunch that this would generally work. If the costs are low enough, we might as well do it and can evaluate as things go on. And that has also, I think, led us to always be reactive rather than proactive. We have to assume it's that way. One of my big pet peeves is that we don't fully know what public health has advised government because what we see is the presentation of what the agreed approach will be. Any government advisor will present a minister with multiple scenarios, especially a scientist will say, all right, if you do X, here will be the result. If you do Y, here will be a predicted result. Here's what we can tell you about the inputs. And then the minister has been choosing one based on political values, which is their point and is their purpose. But then they're relaying it as though it's the only scientifically valid one to have taken, even when it's clear that's not true based on the fact there are different approaches around the world. So it's this like aversion that you were talking about to taking risks, as well as an aversion to really own political decisions as what they are. And here we are. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of issues that have been through. I don't want to right now relitigate every questionable decision that's been made by the relevant people throughout this. There, There is a lot. And when this is all over and we're no longer focused on the day-to-day, there absolutely needs to be a royal commission or two or three into all the various aspects of how Canada, the government, society as a whole reacted to this. Because there were Definitely a bunch of mistakes made through there. Some of them understandable in the moment, but the reason you go back after and do these reviews is so you can identify them for next time. And there hasn't been as nearly as much introspection as is warranted. And that is something that I hope we keep in mind when we are all vaccinated and are starting to move back to normal, that we don't lose sight of the lessons that have been learned from this the hard way. Speaking of hard lessons and mistakes being made, should we talk about vaccines? Yeah, it has there not been, been so a good couple weeks for vaccines. Life. There have been so many stories. Yeah. So I guess first off, well, the, the kind of high level big news is that both Pfizer and Moderna, the two vaccines that are currently approved in Canada, Both companies are cutting shipments from what was originally planned. Pfizer's cutting by 56% or 845-ish thousand doses. Uh, Moderna's only ships once a month, but they're expected that the next shipment around the week of February 22nd is going to be reduced by 20 to 25%, which will mean... About, what, 249,000 fewer doses coming in. So this is a fairly big gap from what was expected. And Canada already wasn't on a great 
that scene trajectory before. So, uh, right now, Canada is somewhere in, I think, around 33rd in the world for vaccinations. So there is a long way to go, and we could definitely be doing a lot more and performing a lot better. We're a G7 country. We should be somewhere around the top seven, and we are just not. Especially when we keep going back to what Trudeau was reminding us through December and early January, and even further back, that we'd bought millions of doses. We had bought options for 10 doses a person almost. And it seemed that was going to work out great. It was like we would almost overbought and we'll be fine. And then we can just give all our extra shots to uh, developing countries who have difficulty accessing them. And we can be a global winner. Interesting thing about that statement was there was a quantity expressed, but there was no time frame attached to it. And a hypothetical dose five years from now doesn't actually do us much good. And that's where I think things have really fallen down. Well, and the other interesting thing is that apparently we are dipping into the fund of money for vaccines for developing countries. Yeah, so there's a international program called COVATS, which basically lets countries pool a bunch of resources and allows, and that's going to help cover the cost for middle and low income countries. Canada's a participant in it. We've put about $440 million into it. Now, this program does allow the countries that are contributing it to draw vaccines off of it, but that's generally a pretty rare thing to do for a developed country. We're the only G7 country that has exercised those options. To, in this case, it's to draw 1.3 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which should be getting approved now, but isn't. Hopefully, it'll be soon. It's approved in the UK and Europe, and they're busy administering doses there. I know the US FDA is really dragging their feet on getting it approved. Canada seems to be hewing closer to where the US is on it than the UK, which is somewhat disappointing, I think, because nobody really thinks the EU or UK regulators aren't up to the job. So it's good enough for them. It should be good enough for Canada. So hopefully we can get that approved soon because there's no reason it shouldn't be here if they've approved it in peer countries. Uh, But regardless, that's the vaccine we're going to be drawn from. New Zealand and Singapore are the other two wealthy countries that are identified in the Globe and Mail article on this. But it is embarrassing for the Trudeau government, particularly as they have made such a big deal about securing all these vaccines in the past. And also because this very much seems to be a reactive response to the fact that they're taking a lot of heat for the fact that the doses that they promised provinces and Canadians overall aren't showing up. And it makes us look bad because all of Africa has only received 230,000 doses overall. It feels like stealing from the food bank because you forgot to get groceries that week. 
it, it does have a slight feel to it. Now, it's not great. Yeah. Well, like I said at the start, this program does have it as just part of the way it works is that the wealthy countries, about half of the amount they put into it are for their own fat scenes they can draw from. But having to dip into it this early when very when there are countries in the program that haven't gotten a single dose out of it yet or have very few is it just feels wrong. And I also have to think like on the net, where is the vac where is each individual dose of vaccine going to do the most good? Having it in lower income countries where the healthcare system may not be able to handle serious COVID outbreaks might actually do more good than making sure it can get to Canada where we could actually just implement more measures like we were talking about earlier to make sure we reduce the spread here. And even if we haven't, our healthcare system is a bit more robust to handle that. Now, we don't obviously want to overflow it, but there's a morally questionable bit of this. That is the thing. You're going to have to vaccinate pretty much everyone on the planet in order to actually get rid of COVID and no longer major deaths. We're seeing variants emerge, and it's quite possible that even if the developed world gets entirely vaccinated, new variants could continue to pop up in places where vaccines distribution hasn't gotten that far yet, and there is the potential that those variants will escape the immune response that the vaccines have. It doesn't do us any good if we're the only places that are vaccinated. It's still a really good thing for Canada and the developed world if we do hit herd immunity levels. But the travel restrictions, for example, will ne- will not be able to be lifted fully until the whole world gets vaccinated. And to do that, they just... We have to produce just a lot more vaccines than are currently in production at the moment. But we might produce vaccines here in Canada. A follow-up to something I think I said we couldn't do last week. There's now an announcement that we're going to be producing potentially a Novavax vaccine, a Canadian-developed one. Uh, that's actually this is Maryland. Uh, a U.S.-based company in Maryland to produce their vaccine at the NRC's biomanufacturing facility, I believe outside Montreal? Yes, it's in Montreal. So this was announced to a great deal of fanfare from the Liberal government earlier this week. Fanfare that I think is not well-deserved for the reasons we were discussing with the travel restrictions, that if you're announcing a vaccine manufacturing process in February of 2021, you're behind the eight ball on this one and it's but yeah i guess better late than never because like i said we more global output of vaccines is just needed and might as well develop the capabilities in canada for it this is unlikely to actually benefit canadians in the short term because the construction of this won't even be finished until july and Health Canada is expected to take most likely the rest of the year to finish certifying the facility, which means it's going to be 2022 probably before the first vaccines roll off the line there and into people. But 
nevertheless, it, it is a good capability to develop. And if for no other reason, then that means more vaccines that can be put into the COVATS program. And it's quite likely that we'll have to basically do a couple years of whack-a-mole against the various COVID variants that pop up. So it's possible future booster doses may be needed to be produced and having the ability to produce those domestically is also useful. Nevertheless, do announcing this a year in and then taking another year before it actually starts delivering is it's not great. We'll and be ready for COVID 2022. <laughs> the other thing that'll help is this facility that Net Precision Nanosystems here in Vancouver is actually developing. They aim to be able to produce 240 million vaccine doses annually, but that's not starting till 2023. So later pandemics we'll be ready for. Yeah, so th these are good capabilities to develop. Now, can, Canada's going to have to probably have ongoing subsidies that keep these places up and running post-pandemic, and it's going to have to be something Canadians are just willing to spend some money on, despite the fact that we tend to be pretty aggressively thrifty often when it comes to such things, but just going to have to be how it is. But... Likewise, 2023 is a little ways away, and it's disappointing. These are so long, especially the certification part. Now, I, I understand that Health Canada typically takes a couple of years, so this is already a compressed time frame, but there's got to be a way to de can determine that a facility is able to meet the required quality outputs in less than six months' time. Like I and I, just a kind of this, I think, goes to the general problem that there just seems to be a lack of urgency on everyone's part in the government towards actually solving these issues and, and getting vaccines into people's arms. When this should be the overwhelming priority for everyone. You know, if there's a place I the think the analogy we to wars have been made, shortcuts on it's on the making sure the facility that develops the things we want to inject every human with is up to snuff. Like, I, I know we need to do this as quickly as possible, but we don't need a scandal rocking the COVID vaccine itself, lest it buoy anti-vaxxers and everything else that's already pushing against a successful vaccine campaign. Yeah, it, it you absolutely need to make sure it's working properly. Nevertheless, I the, the government was pretty happy to celebrate that timeline, and that doesn't really seem sufficient given the actual situation on the ground. And the the war analogy's been made a few times to or Allusions to the war analogy has been made a few times and what we should be doing. And this is, this doesn't feel like it's achieving that level of urgency and commitment. And I think more effort to accelerate those timelines would be worthwhile.
the last story I have in here to touch upon also deals with creating vaccine hesitancy and the bad one here in BC. This is coming out of the Newhawk Nation near Bella Coola, where Dr. John Harding from Vancouver Coastal Health just left the community with over 200 doses of the vaccine, of the Moderna vaccine that was supposed to be given to uh, members of that nation after what seems like a bizarre and probably pretty racist interaction between him and various leaders of their health team. So Dr. Harding, it's alleged through recordings between him and others that he was upset over the quote, aggressive and shocking email sent to him by the Newark executive director, Wilma Mack. And as a result, he took the vaccine back to Vancouver. He also left after only being up there for five days and he left with an RCMP escort because he thought people were going to stick him up, which is quite a sign of how tense things got. There were weird claims in emails that were released or discovered by uh, the media that healthcare workers from Vancouver Coastal Health alleged that the Wi-Fi was too spotty to properly administer the vaccines because they couldn't say, oh, this person is who... They couldn't do the record keeping without having good Wi-Fi. Like they couldn't revert to paper. Yeah. So vaccines are one of those technologies that significantly predates Wi-Fi. And there shouldn't be any reason there isn't a pen and paper backup system in place. So either it's a bad kind of rationalization after the fact for something, or if that was actually a requirement, then Vancouver Coastal Health or the province overall really screwed up by not having a system in place to deal with the many communities that are not well connected to the broader telecommunications system. And there's this other weird back and forth email chain alleged in the documents on the uh, news article we'll link to where Dr. Harding demanded a rollout plan from the New Hawk at like after 5 p.m. one day and he wanted to hear see it by 10 a.m. the next morning like quickly overnight develop a rollout plan for how you're going to give the vaccine to all the members in your community. They delivered the plan at 10.02 and he decided that was too late. This doesn't, he also described the vaccine as a gift for the nation and that they'd already been gifted these many and they're not going to get the gift of the rest. There were some weird changes in the discussion about how he wanted to potentially vaccinate the broader Bella Coola community, but there were only enough doses for members of the New Hawk Nation. It all ended with uh, Vancouver Coastal Health Board Chair Dr. Penny Baleem apologizing directly to the Chief of the Nation, Wally Weber, and his members, as well as statements from Adrian Dix and Bonnie Henry condemning the whole situation. But this comes off of a series of allegations of racism in the BC healthcare system and anti-Indigenous racism, which is culminating in uh, the report that's actually about to be released, I believe, or updated potentially 
tomorrow, Friday, as this is being released. Yeah, there's just so many problems with this. I, I really don't have much to add to it beyond that. This is a bit screw up and obviously it sounds like there's a bad actor in this, but it doesn't seem like the system was robust enough to root around or deal with that right away, which also isn't great. Like you don't want the public health authority coming in and saying, here's how you have to do it, but also coming in and saying, if you don't have a plan to do it, we're not going to help you make one and we'll just take the vaccine and go is also not acceptable. So this, yeah, it's an utter failure. As members of the nation said, this is deeply disappointing. Do fucking better. <laughs> well, moving into quick takes. First up, good news from ICBC as they've announced that the rebates are coming for every driver in BC based on the savings the company posted between April and September because of 35% fewer claims and $720 million fewer payouts, the company is going to give the average driver $190 back. I am not a fan of this. I Don't get me wrong. I would be quite happy to have an extra $190. But this strikes me as one of those things that is good politics, but bad governance. It was not long ago that the Attorney General, who was assigned the ICBC issue, was calling it a dumpster fire. It was posting billion-dollar losses. It was a mess. And it's somewhat strains credibility to think that in that relatively short amount of time, it is now so financially healthy that they can just give away a bunch of savings rather than building up a contingency fund, dealing with kind of past issues. This very much feels like something that is being driven at the political level. Uh, as far as I can tell, there was no huge clamoring out there for a big rebate or anything. The government had the excuse to blame it on the past government, the Liberals' failings on ICBC and why they couldn't return it if they need to. There's no reason beyond politics to start pushing this out when ICBC has not been out of the woods for very long. Yeah, it's populist policy over deeper thinking. Like, ICBC is still going through a number of changes, and yes, I think the money probably could be better used internally. It reeks of Ralph Bucks or even the Horgan Bucks that came out at the end of the year. If Jesus is I'm hearing a lot of people still haven't gotten theirs yet. Yeah, 30% or something in December. going through extra screening. We'll have to come back to that. Anyway, if you drive... Like we pay ice, we have a car, so that's good for me. Yeah, so I'm gonna presumably get roughly that amount back, and I don't hate the prospect of getting more money. In fact, I generally like money to be coming in rather than going out, but just I, I can't agree with this on a general policy level. 
Yeah, there's no good segue to this. So uh, next up is the government announced this week that the Proud Boys and 13 other groups are getting added to Canada's list of terrorist entities. This is amidst of the Proud Boys, a couple other far-right groups, something called the Russian Imperial Movement, which apparently conducted an attack in Sweden, and a bunch of Al-Qaeda and ISIS affiliates. Yeah, this is this is a win for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP who were pushing for the Proud Boys to be listed following... Actually, they were pushing for it before the capital attack, and then they really pushed it when it became clear that was a good line to use. It does vindicate those critics, particularly people like Harsha Whaley of the BC Civil Liberties Association, who were pointing out that be careful what you wish for. Being listed as a terrorist entity isn't just like a feel-good, these are bad groups, we should hate them and we should hate people who affiliate with them. There's a reason, large number of groups listed in here who kind of span the spectrum. I don't think any one of them is a reasonable. There's probably some good guys in any of those. But what does come with all of these being listed is uh, specific actions through the criminal code and otherwise. So if you deal with property or finances of any of these listed entities, or you support them via training or recruitment, or even if you buy their merchandise online, you could be charged with a criminal offense of supporting a terrorist organization. It affects your it affects people's ability to come to Canada if you might be associated with those listed groups. And I know the allegation, or I believe the allegation of being associated with can sometimes be enough for the government to slow down your ability to travel to Canada. And there's also the ability for the government to start taking online content associated with these groups down from the internet. So free speech implications there. I don't shed a tear that Adam Waffen is going to could lose their Facebook page in Canada or their website, but there are deeper implications here. And most of the laws you break if you're in a terrorist group already existed as laws. Yeah. So there were two big calls for action following what happened at the Capitol. One was to bring in new domestic terror legislation. This is primarily US-based, but Canada often kind of looks to what's happening there when considering changes to the criminal code here because generally the border is pretty open and we also have a lot of kind of shared cultural and, and kind of ideas flow back and forth across pretty easily. So it, it could have easily been the thing that Canada also undertook in response. Now this, they don't appear to have been going that way and that's good because there was no real sign that there was a lack of legal tools problem in the lead up to that rather than more general failures to actually synthesize and act on the information that was already available. And then there's the calls to designate these various groups as terrorists and yeah, they all seem like bad groups. I don't think anyone's going to shed a tear for any of them, but I don't like how this became a political football and 
the decisions to add those were done for or appear to be done for political reasons rather than because this is what the experts in the security services have decided have concluded based on all the available information are the organizations that actually pose a threat to Canadians and Canada overall. And I get why the NDP wanted to make this a big thing. They probably collected a bunch of emails and voter potential voter data off their push and their calls for this. It's good politics for the NDP, but I don't like the general approach of it. Like I largely agree, but while we're talking about the NDP playing politics and generating more funds, I guess, the other story to come out this week is that they've cleared their $7.7 million debt left from the past election. This is a pretty big milestone for the party, given that they've been plagued by stories for the last several years of how uh, poor financial state they've been in. They notably had a giant mortgage taken out against their Ottawa headquarter buildings. There's still a collateral mortgage against that, but without the debt, it's, I guess, less serious. I think this is different debt. They're still, so they still have a mortgage on the building, but the debt, other campaign debt has been cleared off. Like it does put them in a position where they could fight another election because you can always just, when you're a major political party, you can take out that debt. You can take out that loan, fight the thing and make it up hopefully by the next election. The party also saved some money last year by not hosting a convention, even virtually. This to the ire of many activists within the party I know, but now they will have one in April. So would a convention have really mattered? I mean, the activists are annoyed, but... Oh yeah, the, all the, the um, party doesn't listen to the activists that, anyway. But yeah, NDP activists are perpetually perturbed, but more generally... Stuff get passed at conventions that party leaders and campaigns ignore. It's not a big deal if they... I don't know what the bylaws say and whether or not they're technically in violation of that or something, but it's just not a big deal if you go a year without a convention between elections. I did find it funny that the NDP's 2021 convention is going to be on the same weekend as the Liberals. I don't think there are many people who intend on going to both because legally you're not supposed under most party bylaws, you're not supposed to be a member of multiple political parties. It is, it does mean they'll be competing for media attention. Yeah. The liberals don't really have a membership anymore. They have this nebulous, like free supporter thing that isn't quite the same as a membership was. There's no fee associated with it. it it's honestly weird. I think they still have members for voting for resolutions and things like that. It was just supporters can vote for the leader. But maybe everyone is welcome at the Liberal Convention when it'll be live streamed on YouTube or whatever. And for completeness, the Conservative Convention will be in March. I'm not sure if and when the Greens will be, though. Speaking of Conservatives, the leader of the party, Aaron O'Toole, has come out swinging against Trudeau's 
constitutional prerogative to pick the next governor general or distinctly advise the queen on who to appoint as the next governor general, calling it a conflict of interest. The basic theory behind his claim is that in a minority parliament, a governor general may be called upon to resolve disputes around what would happen if the government were to, say, lose a confidence vote or or to or if there's a repeat of what happened in 2008 with the prorogation brouhaha that having a governor general appointed by a prime minister would potentially be a conflict of interest which is just not what conflicts of interest are or how the conflict of interest system works like he has the smallest bit of a point that the arm's length panel that Harper used is probably a better process for choosing the governor general than just whoever the prime minister thinks would be a showy name to put up there but like realistically yeah, like I, I think it would be it doesn't matter it would be good yeah it would be good form i think just as a courtesy if Trudeau consulted the other party leaders on who he was appointing, but that's not a requirement. There's no rule that says he has to, and he would be wise to bring back the panel that Harper used to select the previous governor general, but he's not in the wrong if he doesn't do that. And like, the conventions are pretty clear what to do. And if a governor general goes against, that's where we start to get into constitutional crisis land. And yeah, a, a lot of people not, are ain't. Yeah, like it could happen, I guess, but I don't know. It's unlikely. So a lot of people were angry in two thousand eight about the governor general agreeing with Harper's request to prorogue Parliament, but constitutionally, that was a pretty open and shut case and it, it was absolutely the right call and there's no reason to think that if it was to happen in the future that a subsequent governor general wouldn't make a similar decision point being not everything you don't like is a conflict of interest yeah and also there's talk of a spring election coming up now, if the vaccines continue to be a bit of a disaster, the government may not want to face the polls in that particular case. But I assume when it goes ahead, O'Toole still has the problem that he has to introduce himself to a lot of Canadians. And the party's been perpetually stuck at around 30% support for a while now. And... This just isn't going to change that. N nobody who thinks Trudeau did a bad thing with the governor general if he was to just appoint someone at his dis choice is going to be moved by this. Or is that person is not like the typical voter on this. And it's not enough people to actually move the polls at all. There's a few dozen people on Twitter who will be angry about it, but it's just not a issue that has any real resonance. So why is he spending so much time on this? 
Especially because this doesn't even allow him to hit the government over the head for the bad call they made last time. It's introduced an entirely new concept on this rather than litigating like the one general point that might actually have some resonance on the governor general situation. It's just a weird thing to highlight when there is all of these problems with COVID and vaccines that he could be hitting the government on instead. And that might actually be the thing that ends up being the success. If there is a sprint election, the only way I can see O'Toole winning at this point is to do a really good job convincing Canadians that he would have delivered vaccines a lot quicker. Just don't appoint Don Cherry to be governor general. Did you see that terrible Rex Murphy column? I'll just put a link at the end. I try not to read much Rex Murphy these days. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Palatoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>